Let us open up the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us read verses 1 through 17. Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much more rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up your hands which hang down, and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected." For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we come before you, Lord, and we ask that you would, through your Spirit, communicate to us, O God, the truth of this text, what is in it. We pray that you would give us palatable and teachable hearts. And that, O God, you would grow and conform and mold and shape us more into the likeness of your beloved Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray now as we come to worship you through understanding, seeking to grow in your blessed, preserved, and pure word. We pray these things and ask them in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, we come once again to Hebrews chapter 12. And after a long series of looking at exactly who Christ is, what Christ has done, and how we are brought into a new covenant, a new relationship with Jesus Christ, the inspired writer here at the end, he begins to wrap up this epistle to these early Christians who were feeling pressured to compromise truth. That is the gospel truth. Um, with these series of exhortations. And he started off, we've noticed before in verse 14, with the first exhortation, which we're going to continue to work in today. In verse 14 he says, to follow peace with all 
men. Follow peace with all men. And that's simply what we're going to look at here today. This aspect of this exhortation that is a new covenant responsibility and duty that each one of us who claim to have experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ are indebted to follow, to pursue peace with all mankind. Many of you perhaps have heard this famous quote by Winston Churchill, and I'd like to start off my introduction with it. He says in a question and answer form, he says, Do you have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something. It's good that you have enemies. Winston Churchill says, because it simply means you've taken a stand. And anybody who studies, you know, world affairs and history, you know Winston Churchill, he's not the most popular guy at times. As Christians, beloved, we are called to stand for something. And that something is God's truth as it's revealed in His Word. Peter, he echoes this. Uh, It's throughout the New Testament. He says, for instance, in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that lies within you and do it with gentleness and with respect. But you hear there, he's telling you, be prepared to do what? To stand for something. To stand for what? The truth of the gospel. And you stand in in a posture, in a way, to your fellow mankind that's gentle, Peter says, and it's respectful. Even while we live out this witness for God's truth to the best of our sanctified abilities and gentleness and respectfulness, let us not kid ourselves. We are going to acquire enemies, won't we? You can be the most gentle, respectful person, which we are to be. We're going to learn as we continue to unpack this text. But you still will acquire enemies. Why is that? Why is it that someone who's a follower of the precious shepherd Jesus Christ as a gentle and a humble and a kind and a respectful lamb holding and possessing forth the truth of his gospel to a lost and undying world, why would anyone want to be your enemy or my enemy? Well, the answer is very simple. Because the truth which which we stand for in Christ and his gospel It is hated. It is hated by the world. It is hated by Satan and all of his fallen angels, which desire nothing more than to keep this world in utter perpetual confusion, blindness, and darkness. Our enemies, it's important that we understand something about them, these poor souls who are in this state of blindness, who no matter how gentle we are, how respectful we are, how meek we are, how much we walk in the sacrificial ways of Jesus Christ to present them the truth, hate us. It's important we understand something about them. And Paul, as part of my introduction here still, uh, he lays out in Colossians 1.21, I think an important aspect of understanding these people that would want to be our enemies. He says there, many of you know this verse, he said, once you were alienated from God, You were alienated, God, and you were enemies against God in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, we have here a description of those who are going to be our enemies despite our posture, despite how we stand for the truth, because in their minds, beloved, there has not been a new birth. There has not been in the, in the seat of their minds, which is your soul, there has not been a change. There has not been a participation in the process of regeneration, which we looked at last week, which is a requirement to ever have any peace with God, first of all, or peace with your fellow mankind. They don't have it. But Colossians 1.21 that I just read, it's a perfect doorway to step into us who claim to do have this peace, to fully understand, grow in, sanctify in what it means to pursue peace with all mankind. And here it is. You and I were once the exact same way. Do you remember that time? Do you remember a time when you thought you were better than what you really are? (laughs) in your natural depraved state? Can you think back, beloved, to that time when you were in Vanity Fair 
living it up in the city of destruction? Right? I hope you do. Because that is the beginning to fully understanding the commandment we have in verse 14. Pursue peace with all mankind. So this is part two of pursuing peace and holiness. What did we look at last week as we entered into this verse? Well, we looked at its structure of the verse. We looked at its overall context. These are Christians who were in their context being persecuted physically, mentally, emotionally. And after laying the groundwork of who they were as gospel believers, he tells them the first exhortation, pursue peace with all mankind. And oh yeah, it's non-discriminatory. We saw that in the first message. All mankind means all mankind, even those Nasty rascals who are persecuting you. You're to pursue peace with them. And then we looked at, and we, we, we wanted to start to look at in Colossians chapter 3, and that's where we're going to go in a moment. We wanted to start looking at Colossians 3 to help us to understand, well, what does this look like? How, how am I supposed to pursue peace with all mankind? Uh, I mean, give us some framework. And, and, and instead of jumping to a bunch of self-help books, we just go to the Bible. Because these principles that are to guide us to, um, you could say, mold us and shape us as pursuers of peace. They're all through the New Testament, especially highlighted by the Apostle Paul, who many believe is writing this epistle in the Hebrews. After we look at some of these things in Colossians 3, we're going to answer the question, okay, I see how I'm supposed to pursue peace with all mankind. Is there any boundaries? Is, is there a point to where I can't pursue peace anymore? Are there limits on how far I go with pursuing peace? And the answer is yes. The, the New Testament tells us what those are. But let us spend the bulk of our time here this morning in Colossians 3 to make sure, brothers and sisters, that we um, allow the New Testament, especially in Colossians, to do its work in our hearts and ask ourselves, is there any areas in this passage that we need to go before the Lord and ask Him, make me more like this so that I can fulfill this duty that I see as one of your sons or one of your daughters in Hebrews twelve fourteen. So let's go now to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Kind of laid out the roadmap of how we're going to approach it today. Colossians chapter 3. And I'm just going to read verses 12 through 15 for the sake of time because this has for us what I believe is seven character traits that are reiterated all throughout the New Testament that if we put them on, as we'll see in verse 12, like a garment. So like, you know, I'm wearing a suit and you look up here and you see, uh, you see not a black suit, you see a gray suit, Right? That's because it's on the outside. I'm, I'm identified today with a gray suit. And that's what verse 12 is saying. When people look at you, what do they see? What are you known for? Are you known for garments on the outside that are identified with these things? Or are you known as a follower of the Lamb, your Master, for other things? Verse 12, he says, in this kind of imagery of putting on something, put on therefore... Um, We'll get to this in a moment, but he's already laid a ground. He's already laid a lot of groundwork of the main theme of Colossians, which is the forgiveness of God to sinners. That's what he's done, and he gets into verse twelve, and he says, "Therefore, since you have this forgiveness, he says, put on therefore, as the elect of God, that's the church, holy and beloved, bows of mercy." Some of your translations will say bows of compassion, and we treated that last week. But notice he goes on here, secondly, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, some translations have that gentleness, long-suffering, patience, and forbearance. That's some of the translations, modern translations will say for long-suffering, patience. Verse 13, forbearing one another. And we see here something else, having forgiveness for one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, notice he wants you to put something else on it seems. At the end here, put on charity. Some translations will have love, which is the bond 
or something that holds something together, a perfectionness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you are called in one body and be thankful. So I, I just very want to simply walk down through this passage in Colossians to help us to see how to pursue peace with all mankind. Last week we dealt with compassion, so let's just get right here where he says in the second one here in verse 12, kindness. He's telling us to put on kindness, you who are supposed to pursue peace with all mankind. Now, the kindness, the biblical kindness that he's talking about here, it is meaning to show mercy and to good to those who don't deserve it, but something else, those who actually deserve the opposite. We are to, as followers of Jesus Christ, to exhibit, to put forth kindness and goodness to those who not only don't deserve it, because ain't none of us deserve it according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, but, no, it's not good English, but it's true, but we're to show kindness and goodness to those who deserve the opposite. Now what's interesting is this Greek word in Colossians Verse chapter 3 verse 12 that's used for kindness it's the exact same Greek word that pops up again and again when we seek to understand God's kindness to us I could give you many but I'm just going to give you one Ephesians 2 7 in the ages to come oh that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his this is God's his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus so That just carries with it that idea and that understanding that God's kindness, which is to those who don't only deserve it but actually deserve the opposite, is the exact same kindness that you are called, that I am called to mirror to all mankind. That sort of kindness. The Lord Jesus, He taught this emphatically and clearly. You saw a little bit of it in John 16. But keep your finger in Colossians and turn back to Luke 6. Jesus, how many, how many of you have, you have you heard that, you know, we refer to uh, Charles Spurgeon? He's, a, you know, he's in the Reformed Baptist tradition, Charles Spurgeon, known across all, you know, evangelicals as the prince of preachers. Well, you know, I know, I understand why we say that in modern times, but actually Jesus was the, the greatest preacher. And we have a series of sermons recorded by Jesus, the greatest of all preachers, in Matthew and also in Luke 6 here. And they present for us beatitudes. In other words, things that will bring about blessings. And if you go to uh, Luke 6 with me, I want to draw your attention specifically to verse 22 and 23 for our purposes today. He says here, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast you out, uh, cast out your name as it's evil for the Son of Man's sake, for Jesus' sake. Remember, you're standing for something. You're standing for truth. So they're gonna, you can expect this. What's he say there? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did your fathers unto the prophets. I'm simply taking us here because Jesus, like he did in John 16, he prepared you brothers and sisters. He prepared us as his church for these enemies. He did that. He never presented Christianity as something that you wouldn't have enemies. We always will have enemies. But notice, just like the Apostle Paul, Jesus Christ is teaching us a vertical God standard that's to be maintained by his followers in response to these enemies horizontally. Verses 27 and 29, look at it. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. Well, be careful if they're speaking well of you. Maybe it's because you're not standing for something. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say unto you, which here love your enemies... Do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for them which despitefully use you. And unto him that smites you on one cheek, offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak or your garment, forbid him not to take thy coat also. Look, Jump down to verse 35 and 36. It comes through a little clearer the response to such enemies that we will have when we're standing for Him. But love your enemies and do good and lend hoping for nothing again and your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest 
for he is kind unto unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Beloved, in Luke 6 here, in connection with these Beatitudes, Jesus is teaching something that true biblical Christianity is not just an acknowledgement of certain theological truths, the preeminent one being that He is the incarnate Son of God who was the promised Messiah, but it also is a reaction, it's also a lived out action in our lives, even to the most difficult people. And where that's not at, there's something not right in that expression of biblical Christianity. You could have the right gospel, but if there's not accompanied with, i.e. Hebrews 12 verse 14, without which no one will see the Lord, a peaceableness to all mankind, you need to examine your Christianity. Not to say you're not a Christian, not to say you don't have true Christianity, but something's out of balance. There's an ingredient that has a little bit too much in it and not the right mix is what we're seeing in this. Now, let's just all admit something before we go one step further here. It is difficult to talk about peace. It is difficult to talk about showing kindness. It is difficult to talk about loving our enemies when our enemies are shooting spiritual arrows at us at the moment you're telling us to do that. It's difficult, I admit, it's a challenge, I admit, brothers and sisters, to talk about peace in the church when Satan and all of his minions are shooting and flying bullets over our head. I mean, aren't you thinking right now, Pastor Doug, what are you talking about peace with all mankind? Don't you know we're in the middle of a raging war? Everything that we love in our country, in our families, in our churches is under attack. And you're, you're walking us down through Colossians 3 of how to be peaceful to all mankind and gentle and kind. Yes, I know. I am. Brothers and sisters, because it is in our moments of war. It's in the moments where we have been truly victimized, truly offended, truly hurt, where the incipient, concealed pride of our hearts will rise up to the top and justify just about anything and any attitude, any words, any actions that we can muster up that is remaining within our fallen flesh for the cause of God and truth. And that goes against what Jesus is teaching in Luke 6. So when the war is raging is when we do need to come back to these passages and get recalibrated and balanced of who is our master and who are we and what are the instructions that he's given us when we're in the battle and the fight. Kindness does not depend. You saw it in Jesus' words. You saw it in the exhortation from the Apostle Paul. It does not depend on your enemy's character. The kindness that we're to exhibit to those who don't deserve it and deserve the opposite, it doesn't depend upon their religious beliefs. It doesn't depend on our hobby horse and secondary pet peeve convictions. We are supposed to extend that kindness to those who despitefully use us. That doesn't set well with us, does it? It doesn't set well at all. Why? Because it's not natural to the fallen man. Our hearts rear up and we say, oh, you did it to me once, but you'll never do it to me again, right? Uh, we want to, uh, oh, you got a leg up on that? Well, I'll get you back. You see, that's how we are as natural man. And so Jesus coming and teaching what it means to be children of light in the kingdom of God. It was antithetical to all of that. And that's why in these parables and in these beatitudes, there's these deep wells of sanctifying truth that all of us have to from time to time come and marinate in and say, oh God, create with me in my heart this heart which Jesus possessed of kindness. But also we see, look here in verse 12, we're to be clothed with humility. 
Humility in Paul's Roman culture, Roman Greco culture, understand, beloved, much like it is today, it was an abject, uh, servile uh, uh, character trait. You know, only the lowly people had humility. And, you know, and, and let's just be honest, we live in a day and age as well that's populated with very prideful, power-seeking, power-controlling, dominating personalities. And humility is not too popular. Humility is not too popular. But according to 1 Peter 5.5 5 and James 4.6, we're taught that God dwells with the humble. God rewards the humble. And you may be asking yourself, well, what does that mean in this conversation of human-to-human horizontal relationships and pursuing peace with all mankind? Because as God dwells with the humble, it begins to cultivate in our hearts a further humble posture that puts others before ourselves. You know the, the scripture verse very well in Philippians 2.3, which really defines biblical humility here in Colossians 3, that we're told when we're, someone looks at us, they, they see that. They see that that's a garment in our, our, our walk, our life, so forth and so on. Philippians 2.3 says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. So biblical humility, which is instrumental in pursuing peace with all mankind, is putting others before yourself. Even those who irk you, irritate you, gossip about you, post things that are totally, totally of darkness online, they are to be put forth before yourself. We're to close ourselves. Notice in verse 12 here, Gentleness. Gentleness. Now, unfortunately, there is a great popular misunderstanding about gentleness. It has in our popular mind, especially, I would say, knowing my brothers here, knowing myself, um, gentleness has been misunderstood and, uh, in a way that it, it, it demonstrates weakness. You know? Um, I'll be honest, I'll be transparent with you. I don't talk to my son a lot about gentleness, right? I talk a lot about masculinity, strong, be fortified in your convictions and lead and things like that. And that's important, that's good. But gentleness in our modern context is denoted and is seasoned, if I can get amen, because I'm not alone, I appreciate it here, uh, with the idea of, of femininity when we talk about gentleness, Right? That is a sad mistake. It is a sad mistake because the Apostle Paul, I don't think one of us in here would, would say that he was a weak man. But in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he uh, described himself to the church in Thessalonica as when I was there, I was gentle among you. None of us would dare to say Jesus was a weak man, but Jesus described himself in Matthew 11.28-29, 20 I am gentle and humble in heart. Brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to communicate here is that if our definition of manhood does not possess, and I will add, if it does not furthermore reveal in our actions with others, all mankind coming closer home, specifically in our family context, coming a little bit closer to home, even specifically in our marriages, if it doesn't demonstrate gentleness, your biblical manhood, it's not... Christian. It's not fully Christian. It's missing something very important. Showing gentleness, it is not um, a sign of weakness. It, it is to be an important part of the garment that others see in our actions with others. And we have to beware in our reaction to all of the confusion that is going on in our modern culture about what true masculinity is. And there is a lot of confusion. We have to, as the church of Christ, be careful not to overreact and confuse what biblical gentleness and biblical manhood looks like, brothers. Sorry, sisters, you need this gentleness too, but I'm focusing on the guys here. Consider this, friends. Showing gentleness which is required to pursue peace with all mankind 
to our enemies. It is not a weakness, as I said, it's a strength. And oftentimes, in fact, the majority of times, it's a strength that non-believers do not have. You see, the world's way is, I'll win by force and dominance over you. That's very clear. You see it in riots. You see it in uh, shady politics. You see, we're going to use force to win over you. They don't have the strength of weakness, uh, of gentleness. They don't possess that gold mine of a, of a virtue and an attribute that only those who follow God have. It's a shame if we ever see that as a weakness. No, it's our strength gentleness is. And we pursue peace with all mankind when we as Christ's lambs exhibit this gentleness in humility to those that we come in contact, even our enemies. It is a sad thing if non-believing pagans who do not possess the Holy Spirit of God and have these blessed verses in the Bible that we're looking at right now demonstrate and are known for humility, kindness, gentleness more than us. In the workplace, guys, I work in construction. Let's just be real here. Is there some people on the job site that are not even Christians that are known more for their humbleness, kindness, and gentleness than you who are a Christian? This verse is applying to us. This verse ought to be speaking to us. Hebrews 12, 4, 14, Colossians 3. And it, it does exercise us. It does exercise us, doesn't it? But in, in, in addition to humility, we see here as we're continually put on these garments of what we're supposed to be known for, of humility and gentleness, we see here patience and forbearance. I'm just going to, I can't say this any better, I'm going to quote you something here from William Barclay. He describes it as this. What is this that we're to possess and to do? He says, it's the ability to bear with people, not to grow angry or bitter or irritated or annoyed with them, even when they are foolish, even when they are ungrateful, or even apparently they seem to be entirely hopeless. It is, he continues to say, the ability to sincerely take people as they are with all their faults and with all their failings and with all the ways in which they have hurt and wounded us and never truly stop caring for their soul. So, what does that look like in the context of our personal, relational, and also cultural conflict? I'll tell you how it looks. That very annoying blue-haired, dyed, woke, liberal, add all your adjectives on there, person, at your workplace, that just annoys the dickens out of you, you invite them to a cup of coffee. You know, I've never got to really know you. Uh, i got to admit, um, I've noticed some things in your lifestyle that's kept me away from getting to know you. And uh, I'd like to buy you a cup of coffee. And in so much as they're willing to sit down and have that cup of coffee, you're obliged to extend peace to them and have that cup of coffee. We'll get to the moment where boundaries are. But you get the point I'm trying to make here? That's, that's, you're to forbear. You're to be patient with these other people. If you're going to seek ever to fulfill this commandment of being at peace with all mankind. We see sixthly here where to practice forgiveness. Now, what's a little unique here in this character trait that we're to have while we're trying to pursue peace with all mankind? It, I think it's unique because notice that it's actually pointing out that people will sin against us. So the other things are kind of like, you know, yeah, they're, they're my enemy, but I've never had any real contact with them. They never really offended me. This attribute here, if you're going to pursue peace with all mankind, actually is wonderful Bible realism. 
It's biblical realism because people sin against us all the time. And in the context of Colossians 3, what makes it even better, I think, is what I love about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat things. Other Christians will sin against us. That's the context there. Yeah, have other brothers and sisters sin against you. And in those instances, we are to show forgiveness. That's the standard. That's the way we're supposed to be known to live. Ephesians 4.32 echoes this. Not surprising. Paul wrote both. I told you this was a common theme. All these attributes are very common in Paul's epistles. Be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God has forgiven Christ. you. For Christ's sake, you forgive others. And so with this kindness, with this humility, with this God-given, renewed heart and changed disposition, we forgive others, brothers and sisters. I'll move on here for the sake of time and go to the last one here. He says we must be clothed with Christian love. Notice, I, I think the ESV has a better translation of this text. I'm going to give it to you. Look at verse 14. Paul's concluding this list of these converted Christians of how they're to be known in their lives to walk. And he says in verse 14, the ESV translates it this way, above all these put on love. And I like the ESV because it captures this idea and this imagery which love does. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so as you have these other garments you're putting on, um, I guess you could say my jacket would serve as the love. I got undergarments, I have a tie, right? That's the humility, the kindness. But after it's all done, what holds it all together is this, is Christ-like love. But what kind of love are we talking about here? Well, many of you know this word love. It's in the Greek agape. But what makes it important is it's the exact same word that's used to describe God's love for us. And I want to build upon that because it gives us the definition of the love that we're supposed to exhibit to others as we pursue peace. Ephesians 1.4, this word love is used, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world, we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. For Christ and Jesus Christ, Galatians 5.6 says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. With these and many many more, we could define or put a definition here of what biblical love is being described here, that we're to walk in and we're to exhibit to other people who we're seeking to pursue peace with, is a self-sacrificial giving for another person's best. That's what Christ gave you. That's what Christ gave me Himself. Biblical love that we're to possess that we're to extend to all mankind is a self-sacrificing love for their best. Notice with me how he is again prioritizing this above all of them. Above all of them. I said it earlier as we're going to transition here now. This does not meet us, especially at this time, with ease. Because again, we're in the middle of a war. You're, I, I know, beloved, you're feeling the conflict every day. Some of us more than others, depending on the context providentially that we're in. Some of us you know, are feeling just a radiant heat, and some of us are right next to the flame, uh, you know, raging. So I understand that. So let me give you now... What are some biblical boundaries? What we have focused on and what I've sought to focus on and what I myself in my own prayer clause and am asking God to cultivate in my own heart is this Christ-likeness as I am called to live out peace with all mankind. Give me that. I want others to see that in me, Lord. I want my words. I want my deeds. I want my thoughts to be clothed with this image. All of these things. Now we're going to apply it out in the world here, right? And so as we're walking out here today at the church, it's like, yes, Lord, help me to be kinder, even to those who don't deserve it and deserve the opposite. Help me to be humble. Help me to be gentle. Help me to be merciful, forgiving, all those things, right? Now you're going to go do it. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves, it's a natural question, what's the boundaries of pursuing peace with these enemies? They are true enemies. 
They have a gun loaded and cocked and pointed at you and some have already fired some shots. What's the boundaries? Well, first of all, the question is, is there any boundaries? And the simple answer is yes. There's boundaries. You as a lamb who is gentle, kind, merciful, humble, so forth and so forth, as you're pursuing peace with all mankind, Hebrews 12, 14, without which no one will see the Lord. So I pray that you're doing that. I pray that you have a heart that wants to do that. I pray that we leave here today and we say, Lord, I, have, I, I confess I have not had a posture of heart that wants to pursue peace with these irritable, nasty, lost pagans. I hope that we leave here and we say, thank you for showing me this in your word. I need to be sanctified in your word. Is there any boundaries now as I go to do this? And the answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. The Old Testament prophets again and again exhibited boundaries in their various ministries as they sought to proclaim the truth of God in His Word. Um, They would never ever compromise anything that God told them to give to the people for the sake of tranquility and peace. We know Jeremiah and many other the prophets were horribly treated, mocked, and thrown into prison. Paul, who's writing this, he exhibited boundaries, did he not, brothers and sisters? He exhibited boundaries even in his own ministry with other Christians. In the book of Acts, we have the confrontation between Paul and Peter. Peter was tampering with the doctrine of justification. He had, you know, the guys, the good old boys from the Jerusalem church over to the the barbecue at the Galatian church. And at that barbecue... Peter, he went over and he sat with all the boys from Jerusalem because they couldn't sit over there with the Gentiles because they didn't have outward circumcision. And you know, the boys over there in Jerusalem, they thought, hey, that was part of how we are justified, a belief in Jesus plus circumcision. Now, Paul had a decision there to make, didn't he, brothers and sisters? Hey, I'm supposed to, you know, pursue peace and and keep tranquility and everything. Um, so I am going to just, you know, kind of cover that with love. I'm going to be patient, forbearing. Peter, he's just a little off on that. No, 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 no. Paul did what? He come to Peter. Now, whenever I've heard that confrontation described in sermons, people always present Paul like this guy who was up in Peter's face. I don't know why pastors do that. I don't know why they read that in the text. It says he stood him to his face. I take that to mean that there was a confrontation. He'd come to Peter face to face. We hear that in the West, and I don't know if it's popular culture or movies or whatever. We get this image, and it comes out in sermons sometimes, like, you know, you see Peter and Paul standing toe-to-toe, and Paul, you know, is like standing in his face, telling, you know, you're going to back down on this. It wasn't like that at all, friends. It wasn't like that at all. The apostles didn't do that to each other. No, Paul came to Peter with gentleness, meekness, trying to retrieve an erring brother back to the truth. In that case, the doctrine of justification. But not just the Old Testament prophets and Paul, but Jesus repeatedly exhibited boundaries in his ministry. We were hearing it even this morning. Read the Gospels, for instance. There's multiple examples of his confrontation with religious leaders. What did they all share in common? What was the boundary for them is the question. Because if we answer that correctly, that's our boundary today as we seek to pursue peace with all mankind. And here's the answer. They never gave up truth for the sake of peace. They never compromised truth for the sake of peace. Or as J.C. Ryle once said, never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion, I would underscore that, any portion of truth on the altar of peace. The implications of this boundary is huge. It has denominational implications. It has personal implications. It has workplace implications. You could, we could spend a whole, I'm not going to do that to you guys, but we could spend a whole other month talking about the implications of that right there. How that looks. How, how, what do we see going on in broader evangelicalism? So, the, so, so forth and so on. Paul, the prophets, Jesus, all of them, as Ryle rightly observes, they never sacrificed any portion of God's truth for the sake of peace, nor should you. You say, okay, Pastor Doug, 
I'm glad you clarified that because you had me worried the whole time that we were going to be part of the ecumenical kumbaya that's taking place and blinding all of evangelicalism. So I'm glad that you're saying we need to stick to truth. But tell me, Pastor Doug, as a follow-up question, I don't, do, I don't speak in second person often in sermons, but it seems to be working right now. Uh, as a follow-up question, is there a time where you're ever to cease pursuing truth? Pursue peace with all mankind. You know the disposition of your heart and your character you're supposed to do it. You know the boundary. You never sacrifice truth. So as long as you sit down with that cup of coffee, back to the, the one person, uh, and, and, and you're talking and you're exchanging, is, is, there, is there a time, you, you, you know you can't compromise truth, you'll listen. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to understand, where are you coming from? What's your worldview? What, how do you think these things? You know, and you're going to listen. You're going to say, well, you know, Here's the, have you ever thought about that? Here's the truth. I mean, you're created by God and you're working through all that, whatever. Uh, you will never give up biblical ground truth for the sake to have a peaceful, tranquil relationship with that person. Now, they're created in the image of God. You have to agree to disagree. They're going to get up from the table and I'm not going to be bitter toward you. I'm not going to be angry toward you. I'm going to pray and I'm going to really feel sorry for you. You're trapped like I once was too, right? That, right? But do you have to keep pursuing that person? For another cup of coffee and another, you know, until you get them to finally convince that they're right, right? Well, that's a that's a multifaceted answer, but the simple answer is at a certain point, while you are with all your sanctified ability that God gives you, seeking to pursue peace, not sacrificing truth while you're doing it, there is a time, friends, where you cannot feel guilty for ending the peace pursual. You guys know uh, several times in the scriptures, predominantly in Matthew and in Mark, there's this phrase, just shake the dust off your feet. You know that phrase, right? This command to shake the dust off your feet, it appears four different times in the New Testament. And each time it is specifically Jesus sending his disciples out two at a time to go take the message and the gospel of peace that they received from the Prince of Peace about how to have peace with God. And Jesus tells them if they do not receive it, he has this strange language, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He says in Mark 6.11, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. He clarifies the meaning in Matthew 10, 15. He says, truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town or those who refuse the peace that you're offering them with God through the gospel. Friends, shaking off the dust of the disciples' feet was a symbolic way of teaching them and us that they had done what God had called them to do. In so much as they're cultivating that heart, like Jesus, of gentleness, meekness, humility, etc., etc., a care for other people's soul. Not a fake one, guys. I'm talking about a real one. We're broken for the lost. And we go in as much as we do that. And they say, no, thank you. I want nothing to do with it. You could try a couple times if you feel compelled and led to do that until they finally... You know, not only close the door, but put three deadbolts on it. Understand, you're not in violation of the scriptures if you don't go back the fifth time. You're not. You have no more responsibility for the outcome of that enemy of God and of you. This can be applied in personal relationships and conflicts. Uh, the easiest thing in interchurch conflict, in marital conflict, always the best solution is it not, beloved, in your own experience to own your own sin, be transparent, say, yes, I did that. And then restitution can, reconciliation can begin. But if you come, and usually this is the case, and where there's a conflict and argument, there's two people contributing. Your responsibility is gentleness, meekness, humility, come and say, I am sorry. I am sorry. I, I wronged you. I don't care that you pushed my buttons. I don't care on the job site you were irking me. I responded in the wrong way. Please forgive me. 
The rest, you can't control. And you don't have a responsibility to come again and again and again until they finally acknowledge their part in the mess. All you can do is own what you have done. And that's what God requires of you. In these scriptural examples of this phrase, shaking the dust off our feet, I wholeheartedly believe Jesus was telling the disciples that they were to preach the gospel of peace to everyone. They were to do it in a posture of humility, kindness, patience, and gentleness, even unto their enemies. That's how we are to pursue peace with all mankind, Hebrews 12, 14. That's the boundaries of where we can't go any further in the peace pursual, right? And that's the limitation. So with all of that, we start holiness next week. The pursuit of holiness. For without which, no one will see the Lord. So I pray the Lord will help us as we're looking at this text to just really develop these things in our hearts where they could be kind of missing or, or, or just needing to be further developed to make us the followers of Christ looking from afar you see and you say, yes, there are some of Jesus' disciples. I can tell there's something different about those people. Amen. Let us pray. Our triune God, we come to you, Lord, in humility, giving you thanks for your blessed word, giving you thanks for your only begotten and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, who modeled all of these things in the perfect way. Help us, we pray, Lord, to follow in the footsteps of our Savior and our Master, Jesus Christ, and to pursue peace with all of those around us. Help us, Lord, to preserve for the sake of Your glory and the truth that You have endowed and trusted to us through, Lord, the revelation of Your Holy Spirit in Your Word, the truth that You have given us. But, O God, um, give us, we pray, seasoned hearts. Give us tame tongues. Give us, we pray, Lord, sanctified attitude and ability, Lord, to do this. We confess to You, God, that we can grow very weak and we can grow very frustrated and we can grow very impatient and tired, Lord, of this responsibility that we have as Your disciples to pursue peace with all mankind. And I just ask, O oh God, that You would use not only our, the witness of our lives as we seek to be Christ to a dark and dying world, but God, that You would use the gospel of peace that we possess and that we speak to transform hearts, to transform, dear Lord, sinners to sinners that are saved by Your glorious grace. Would you do that, Father, as, it accord, that it, as, as much as it is according to your most holy will? Lord, we need this in our day and age. We need, O oh God, a movement of you to help us to be that light, that sort of light being described here to this world. We know we are confident, God, that all things are in your hands and you will accomplish all of your purposes in and through us according to your perfect timing. We thank you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.